0: Welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode... Cam Edwards joins us to discuss the issue of guns, most specifically in the state of Virginia, where gun control efforts are in full force, but where an assault weapons ban bill was just defeated. We'll discuss the various legislative pieces still being discussed, what it all means for gun owners in the state, and if there is a larger trend across the country to institute stricter state gun laws. Before we bring Cam on a little bit about him, he has covered the Second Amendment for more than 15 years as a broadcast and online journalist, and he is the co-author of Heavy Lifting, Grow Up, Get a Job, Start a Family, and Other Manly Advice, which he co-authored with Jim Garrity. He lives outside of Farmville, Farmville, Virginia with his family. A pleasure to have you on, Cam.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, Cam, I think it's a very interesting time to have you on because you are living in the state that is going through the most changes on an issue that you're an advocate for, and that is the Second Amendment. What is it like to be a Virginian right now?
1: It's kind of scary, honestly. Um, You know, as you say, this is not what we've seen from Democrats in years past when they've uh, taken control of the state legislature and they maybe kind of, you know, try to nibble around the edges. I mean, they are going for as big a chunk uh, out of the right to keep and bear arms as they possibly believe that they can get. And so we're seeing, you know, dozens of gun bills that were introduced. And there are about eight major proposals from Governor Ralph Northam that uh, that he's really pushing and that House Democrats and, and, and to a slightly lesser extent, uh, Senate Democrats are pushing as well. Everything from, you know, bans on the most commonly produced rifles today, commonly owned magazines, uh an end to statewide firearms preemption laws and the ability for you know anti-gun cities to put in place gun control laws that could curtail the the possession or the transportation of firearms it, it's you know they're they're trying to go from a state that was uh, i think very friendly towards the right to keep and bear arms and to try to turn it in you know a matter of weeks uh into a state like california or new york or new jersey
0: and California is a state that I grew up in, so I am familiar with a lot of their gun laws there. Um, I'm curious from you, as we see this main change that has taken place in the state legislature, which of course um, took place in November when Democrats took control and now are acting in full force um, beginning in January, did you expect them to go this strong against guns considering Virginians are pretty gun friendly?
1: You know, I, I did expect them to do this um, in, in part because of the support that they received from Michael Bloomberg uh, during the campaign in 2019. Bloomberg targeted about a dozen or so suburban swing districts and spent millions of dollars uh, to try to flip the legislature. And he was successful in doing so. Uh, I think there was a gain of about eight seats in the state house, uh, two in the state Senate. And that was enough for Democrats to take control of the state government for the first time. And in twenty six years, and so there's a I, I think a sense within the legislature that they have to repay Bloomberg uh, for the help that he gave them. but I also do believe that there is a mentality among the Democrat party at large right now that that gun control is a winning message I, I believe that if that is the case, it's because they're lying to voters. Uh, they're claiming that these things are you know common sense gun safety measures when in fact the bills that we've seen introduced in Virginia would turn the vast majority of the state's legal gun owners into criminals simply for keeping the things that they currently own.
0: So let's break that down a little bit more. Like you said, they're using this messaging of this is common sense. And I think a lot of people have been scared by what we have seen based on the reporting when it comes to uh, shootings that take place. I mean, there's a lot of stats that show it's actually not increased how many shootings take place, but people are scared. There is fear. When you look at what they're proposing in legislation, why do you say it turns gun owners into criminals? What are some of those specifics that you're seeing that really is an extreme measure?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, House Bill 961 is the uh, the governor's gun ban bill. And uh, this was introduced, actually, it it started out as a Senate bill, Senate Bill 16, and it made it a felony to continue to possess uh, so-called assault weapons magazines that can hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition legally owned suppressors and uh what they define as uh, trigger activators things like bump stocks binary triggers and the, and the like so you could have owned these items for years but if that bill had become law and it was backed by governor northam uh on you know january 1 2021 you would be a felon if you still had any of those items in your possession. Um, That bill actually kind of sparked the Second Amendment sanctuary movement, and and there was this huge outcry. So Governor Ruthen backed away from that, and then just before the session started, he uh, backs uh, House Bill 961. And the only change is, uh, at the time anyway, it it allowed for people to maintain possession of their so-called assault weapons uh, as long as they got permission to do so from the state police, and they registered themselves and their guns with the state police. And and the rest of the bill is virtually identical. The bill's been watered down as it's made its way through the legislative process. So suppressors got grandfathered in. Magazine: uh, the penalty for possessing a magazine dropped from a felony to a misdemeanor. Although they kept it as a felony to transport one of these quote unquote large capacity magazines. So they're you know they're playing games with the specific language because really at the end of the day, what's most important to Governor Northam and to these Democrats is to get something. That they can call a gun ban on the books, and, and if they don't like all of the details, if it's not strong enough for them, they'll come back next year and they'll simply put, you know, more restrictions in place.
0: Yeah, it sounds like this is just the first step of an effort that they want to continue. I want to focus on one of the things you just said there, and that was assault weapons. So this has been something, of course, on the national scene that has been talked about a lot, the, the, the fear of an assault weapon and people saying, well, why does anybody who's not in the military need this type of gun? What can you tell us about these types of guns and why it's something that would be reasonable for somebody who's not in the military to possess?
1: Sure, I mean, well, like I mentioned before, I mean, these are the most commonly produced rifles in the country today. They they are the standard rifle uh, in 2020. Are, are they uh, functionally similar to your grandfather's, you know, Woodstock hunting rifle? Yep, they are. Uh, it's just that now, you know, with advances in, in technology, they're lighter. Uh, they're typically, you know, not uh, made of wood, but but made of uh, a polymer or some sort of composite material. Um, they're actually safer, uh, and they are more modular. Uh, so individuals can, you know, swap out uh, a new barrel or a lower receiver. They can build their own quite functionally uh, and, and fairly easily. Um, and it's become the standard firearm. It's become the standard long gun, anyway, uh, in the United States. The, the Supreme Court has already declared that you know arms that are in common use for lawful purposes, are protected under the Second Amendment. And I think that would certainly apply uh, to semi-automatic long guns. Uh, You know, unfortunately, it is true that they are used in a a very small number of high-profile crimes. Uh, And I think that uh, that is what has driven the fear among a lot of non-gun owners uh, that, you know, well, if if we just ban these guns, then those types of acts will stop. Uh, We know that that's not the case. We've seen, uh, you know, incidents like these uh, happen in states like California that that have banned so-called assault weapons. Um, we also know we can't really ban our way to safety. I, I mean, you look at the crime rates in Washington, D.C. and in Chicago when they actually had a ban on handguns in place, and they were higher than they are now uh, a decade after the ban has been struck down. So, you know, I think as gun owners, we we have a, a, a fairly difficult job to do and in terms of educating and communicating these things with non-gun owners. But, uh, you know, ultimately, we are all concerned about the same thing. We all do want a safer society. We want our kids to be able to play on the streets uh, in a safe neighborhood. It's just I, as a gun owner and a Second Amendment supporter and somebody who studied this issue, I have very different ideas about how we get to that safer society than Michael Bloomberg or Shannon Watts or, or the typical volunteer for Moms Demand Action.
0: And I know on January 20th, there was a large rally in Richmond, Virginia, where Second Amendment advocates showed up to voice their displeasure. There was a lot of chaos as far as the news coverage leading up to it, saying it was going to be some white supremacist rally. Um, One of my favorite facts about that is the local officials saying how clean the city was left when when people who attended the rally left. When you see that many people show up, when this is an issue that makes national news, when we're talking about something that's changing on the state level, what has the response, the outcry been from those who support the Second Amendment in response to these legislative l- legislative pieces?
1: I mean, in all honesty, it's, it's been like nothing I've ever seen before. Uh, and I've been covering Second Amendment issues for over 15 years now. You know, it, it, it the the reaction was almost immediate. Uh, in the days after the November elections, you saw folks that were starting to show up at their county supervisors' meetings, and they were asking for these Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions. And at first, it was one or two. Uh, and, you know, a few days would go by, and all of a sudden, you'd hear reports about several dozen people showing up at a county supervisor's meeting. And then, you know, a few days later, it was hundreds, and ultimately, it became thousands of people. Uh, who were showing up a lot of times in in very rural counties, but also in a lot of suburban uh, places and even some of Virginia's largest cities. And this movement really just swept across the state. It has engaged gun owners politically, uh, and many of them for the very first time. Uh, You know, these are men and women who aren't really innately political. They don't really like politics, Um, but they now are aware that politicians are interested in them and said they better be interested in what politicians are doing And I think it's going to resonate far beyond this uh, legislative session. I think that this is going to have an impact on the 2020 election in Virginia. uh, And I hope that we're going to be able to keep this energy and this engagement up and this momentum going so that these gun owners can play a decisive role in taking back the state of Virginia in 2021, which is the next time we have the opportunity to uh, vote on our uh, state delegates.
0: And something you mentioned earlier was the the money that Mike Bloomberg put into the state. There does seem to be almost these outside forces, people who aren't even Virginians, who want to use Virginia's almost this case study of what could take place. And I've wondered if one of the reasons why Virginia was chosen as far as a state to put this money into was because it's where the NRA has been headquartered. Um, One of the interesting pieces of legislation I thought was it seems to limit the ability for people to train in certain ranges. There would be some restrictions and. My thought was, isn't the whole point of people being able to be trained so that they can be prepared should a situation happen? Do you think that there has been just because the NRA is part or is based in Virginia, that there has been a target against the organization and therefore Virginia was called out because of it?
1: Absolutely. Uh, That has happened. And and we've seen it with that bill that you talked about that would have closed down the NRA range and and it would have closed down some other ranges too. But I, I truly believe that the intent was to specifically target the NRA range. Uh, We've seen another bill that would make it much more difficult for uh, people to obtain a concealed carry license because it would remove the NRA-certified firearms instructor's ability to actually teach these courses, Uh, and instead you'd have to be certified by the state under the process uh, through which law enforcement and private security guards uh, are are trained. So there aren't as many of those firearms instructors, uh, particularly in rural areas, and it would be a real nightmare, and it's all because the, of the words NRA certified firearms instructor and NRA safety training uh, appear in the state statute. And you've got these lawmakers who are so anti-NRA that they would throw the entire system of concealed carry into disarray because they don't like the fact that, that the NRA is the gold standard when it comes to firearms training. I mean, like it or not, that's the reality, uh, and, and, and if these lawmakers have a problem with that, well, they should, you know, probably bug Michael Bloomberg. He's a billionaire. He spent hundreds of millions of dollars going after the rights of gun owners. Maybe he could actually spend a few million to come up with some actual firearms training curriculum, uh, to, to compete with the NRA, but they're not interested in that. I think ultimately at the end of the day, they're interested in turning this right into a privilege. Uh, and in order to do that, yeah, I think that they have to, uh, to try to defeat the NRA and they have to. You know, splinter gun owners and make our advocacy as ineffective as possible.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned the training aspect of it. So I I currently reside in D.C. Now D.C. has its own gun issues altogether. Um, But I even as a female considered taking one of the training courses that's offered at the NRA that's specifically for women. I was like, well, that'd be great if I get a gun. I actually want to learn how to use it. And these are things that are being threatened by this type of legislation. And it it seems to me there's not a lot of thought behind a lot of the legislation, other than to just prove a point um, that they think guns are bad. I mean, is that is this a real goal to just try to get rid of guns altogether?
1: I believe so. I mean, I, I really do believe that the the definition of gun safety, uh, according to you know, every town for gun safety, is don't own a gun. It, it's not about education. It's not about training. Uh, it is about otherizing and denormalizing the exercise of a constitutional right. And, you know, one of the things that I've been very encouraged by in Virginia in the wake of the elections is you've seen this incredible cross section of people who who are showing their support for the Second Amendment. You you mentioned the rally um, and, you know, you saw Virginians uh, of of every shade of skin color, every ethnicity uh, across the political spectrum, left, right. Uh, Somebody was walking around with a rainbow Gadsden flag, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. You know, ultimately, the Second Amendment, um, the majority of people who own guns may be conservative, but but the Second Amendment is an American right. It's a right of all of us, not just of the right. And and I believe it's it's really the last big tent movement that we have in this country. Uh, and, and the bigger the tent, the better, I, I I believe, as far as protecting our rights. So I think that, again, I'm 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 encouraged. We're in a pretty dark spot right now in Virginia but I am encouraged by what I'm seeing uh, among gun owners and this new community and this new network that's being built um, to, to not just push back politically, but also to get our message out culturally uh, about the Second Amendment and about the right to keep and bear arms.
0: I've even wondered from a strategy perspective if this has been a a poor move by Democrats that they've overplayed their hand too much. I mean, there's a reason why rallies are forming, why people are showing up and that they've taken such extreme measures um, so quickly that I think that this this outcry has been the result of it. And so for some of our, our listeners who are listening to this podcast, you say, I don't live in Virginia. It doesn't really matter. What could this mean for other states? I'm assuming that seeing what happens, Virginia could at least set a precedent or a roadmap for other states to follow suit, correct?
1: Yep. Oh, yes. Uh, You're absolutely correct about that. I mean, this is the thing. They view Virginia as not just a huge victory, but but as a a playbook uh, that they can now take to other states. So they're they're targeting the state of Texas, for example, uh, and they don't need to flip 40 seats Right, if they flip eighteen seats uh, in the state house, then all of a sudden the state house is is blue. It's run by anti gun Democrats. Um, They're looking at Tennessee. They're looking at places where they believe that they can play in the margins, and all they need again is a one or two vote majority. That's enough for them to get their agenda through. So the the map is not as secure as we might like to think that it is across much of the country. Uh, One of the other things that I would say too is that. It's not even just at the state level. Um, they're showing up at local school board meetings. They're showing up at city council meetings. Gun control advocates, uh, particularly the groups that are are being directed and, and funded by Michael Bloomberg, are being very very effective uh, in how they're utilizing their resources. And gun owners, you know, again, no matter where you live, no matter how safe a state you might be in, I guarantee you there is something somewhere uh, where where you can. Make a difference by being involved and where your rights are under attack.
0: Final question for you, and this is an issue you talk about, an issue you've dedicated your life to. What have you found to be an effective way to talk about this issue, especially to young people? When you talk about people who currently own guns, obviously they're already sold on why they think that's important. Do you find with young people, there's a message you try to get out to them as far as the safety implications? Do you think we have the potential of losing future generations if we don't talk about this well?
1: Yeah, I do, um, and, and so I, I think that there are a number of approaches to take, right? I, I, I typically, you know, I don't start with the safety conversation. Um, I, I typically come at it from a a, a, a pro rights perspective, um, and a lot of times I'll talk about just the the practical implications of, of putting in place these gun control policies. You know, we've seen Michael Bloomberg, I sort of get raked over the coals for his support for stop and frisk, but. But but that's enforcement of gun control in action, and so a lot of individuals who may support in theory the idea of gun control laws also have a real problem uh, with with how you know these laws are, are being enforced in uh, in high crime neighborhoods, and I want them to understand that that these things are are, are connected, and I think right now there is this disconnect uh, in examining some of the, the the laws on the books and how those laws get enforced. Um, but then when you do talk about the, the safety issue, I, I think it is important to understand and to, you know, bring forth that argument that the, the best way to ensure uh, gun safety is to ensure that people have the opportunity for education and training. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of, of uh, training mandates to uh, you know, certainly not to own a firearm, but I am a huge proponent of training opportunities. And unfortunately, right now, uh, again with the idea of gun safety, uh, meaning don't own a gun, we see all of these attempts to make it as difficult as possible uh, for people to get that training. You say you live in Washington D.C., well, there are no public ranges in Washington D.C. There, there no, there's no place where you can go to get the training that's required uh, for you to have before you can own a gun in Washington D.C. You have to go to Virginia. You have to go to Maryland. Those are the types of barriers that are put in place that do absolutely nothing to make us safer or to protect anybody. All, all it does is frankly encourage your responsible gun ownership. Um, and unless you're going to make the case that really you want to repeal the second amendment, you don't think anybody should own a gun. Then we have to talk about what's constitutional, what's effective and, and what's enforceable.
0: Well, you do talk about all those things on a regular basis. We so appreciate your work on this important issue and we thank you for joining. She thinks today.
1: Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. And I really appreciate it.
0: And thank you all for joining us today. Before you go, I did want to let you know of another great podcast you should subscribe to in addition to She Thinks. It's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.